had Adrian worried there for a minute. Uh, John 20, verse 19, all the way through to verse 31. And it should be, uh, it is there behind us, behind me, in front of you. So, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other Jesus, uh, so, so the other disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, "Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe it." A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you all this evening. Steph, that is brilliant news, but really sad. I hate that when we... Oh, it's not sad, says Dad. Dad seems rather pleased. Is this a permanent contract? So we just need to come on holiday to find you. Great. Well, we are really, really, really pleased. I'm going to pray as we look at this passage together, and as I try and get rid of this microphone. Let's pray together. Loving Father, please. Well, we want to pray for Steph. We pray, Father, for her. It's going to be really sad to see her go, certainly for us, even if not for her dad. And Father, we want to thank you for that great answer to prayer and pray for her as she begins to settle into that place, a place of lots of activity, but a place where it sounds as though your name will be proclaimed. And we pray that you would use her mightily. And Father, we come to another man, another man here, so another person, an individual who uh, gradually came to know you and was used mightily by you. It's said that uh, he was the one that took the gospel to India. We come to look at Thomas. And we pray that as you opened his eyes, so you might open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things here in your words. Melt our hearts 
motivate our wills, that we might live in humble obedience to all that we read here. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark, our curate, will soon be gone. And we ask ourselves, what will his legacy be? What will we look back on and remember from those three years that he and Amy have been here? We will sort all that out nearer the time and we'll have a big goodbye. But answers on a postcard, if you think of anything. What are the legacies of Mark? Then Donald Trump, next Saturday, reaches his 100-day mark of being the president of the US. And ever since FDR, since Roosevelt, that 100-day mark has been a moment to stop and ask the question, what has been accomplished in those 100 days? What has he accomplished? Answers on a postage stamp to me at the end. But what about Thomas? What is Thomas's legacy of his life? Well, for all of us, it's not something you can write on a postcard. It's not something you could even bother writing on a postage stamp. For many of us, it is just one word with five letters. It is the word doubt. And I don't know about you, but I have uh, get the, uh, well. I, I feel a little bit sorry for uh, for Thomas. He's not unlike poor old Julie, who works in our office, our administrator, who has forever now become known as Julie in the office. Never called by her real name, just Julie in the office. Not just, but she is Julie in the office. And of course, we now know Thomas as doubting Thomas. And I always get that feeling when I talk to people about Thomas, they always go slightly gooey-eyed. There's always that, oh, dear old Thomas, you know, bless him, is the kind of things. He's a bit of a lamb, isn't he? He's a bit of a, oh, he got there in the end. And uh, funny enough, I saw someone who I said I was preaching on Thomas, and oh, I love Thomas. <laughs> and isn't that how lots of us, oh, we love Thomas. He's kind of, hmm. Is that really Thomas's legacy? A five-word, five, sorry, five-letter word, doubt. To be forever known as Doubting Thomas, for everyone to go gooey-eyed, go, oh, is that really his legacy? I don't believe so, and I, hopefully I want to show you why not as we look at this passage together. Just some context, uh, many of it, much of this you will know, of course. Jesus has been crucified. But it's clear his disciples were not expecting it to happen. No matter that Jesus had told them time and time again that he must suffer and die and then three days later he would rise again. But it simply didn't fit with their understanding of what would happen when Messiah came. Maybe they thought that his language was always rather sort of metaphorical, maybe symbolic. I love that John in the previous passage that we looked at last week is incredibly honest. John is what the disciple Jesus loved, who we're told had a race with Peter and rather triumphantly says that I got there before Peter when they ran to the tomb. But actually it was Peter that went in and then eventually John looked in. And we're told that John looked in and that he saw and believed. But he saw and believed that the tomb was empty He didn't see and believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he's really honest. He tells us in verse 9 of the previous passage that we had last week. He said he saw and believed they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And we know that they didn't understand what happened because we know that while they're in the upper room, 
after the crucifixion, we do not find them in there going, yes, we can hardly wait till Sunday. It's going to be so exciting when he walks through that door and doesn't even open it. I mean, if they knew that's what was going on here, that's how they'd have been, but they weren't. We're told they're locked in the room. We're told they're fearful. But what had been done to their leader might be done to them, guilty by association. My guess is they were distraught, that all hopes of Messiah had come crashing to the ground. A real, genuine, victorious deliverer from God doesn't die on a cross when so little seems to have changed. I also imagine they're slightly embarrassed. They have publicly put themselves out there with this Jesus for three years and now a public failure. And how are people going to face them, look at them? What are they going to say about them out there in the world? That's how I imagine them to be as they're locked in that room. But then, as you know, as we heard last week, as you know all too well, Jesus appears to Mary, to the other women, to Peter and John, and then here at the beginning of the passage, to the ten of them. Of course, there's no Judas. He has already gone away and killed himself. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus came. But now we come and look at Thomas himself. That's the background. And I want to give you three things to notice about Thomas. The first is this. The cry of the disappointed doubter. The cry of the disappointed doubter, verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. When Thomas doubts, it's important to ask the question, what kind of doubt is it that Thomas has? There are many types of doubts in this world. There is the doubt of the person who simply doesn't yet have enough information. We were sat yesterday with, uh, uh, at a wedding, and uh, we always get that slightly awkward moment at a wedding when you turn to those around you, and they tell you what they do for a living, and then you tell them what you do for a living, and you say, well, actually, I'm a vicar. And there was, there was a one guy who was too along for me who kind of looked at me in that, Okay, and I could see him slightly, and uh, he didn't know whether to engage me in a debate or not. But what became very clear was how little he understood about the church, probably about Christianity. He had very little information, asking me all sorts of questions. And it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of people today, their doubts are not born because they heard stuff and then don't believe it. It's because many of them have not heard very much. We're reaching those generations now that haven't been taught things that were once taught now we're seeing it on Life Explored, Christianity Explored. More people coming and not knowing the basics. It was lovely to hear someone go, who's Abraham? Where, where do I find this story? I've not heard it before. And to point them in that direction. Some doubt comes from simply not knowing. But there's also the doubt of a person who no matter what information they're given, they simply won't believe something because it doesn't fit into the way they see life and the world. So they won't believe it no matter what evidence you show them. Just think of the head of the EPA in America, appointed by Donald Trump. Sorry, I'm on his case today. Responsible for all environmental affairs to do with the states. And who refuses to acknowledge that global warming has anything to do really with human actions and CO2 emissions. 
in the face of lots and lots of scientific evidence, refuses to believe the evidence because it doesn't fit with the way he wants the world to be because he used to be in the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry. And then there is the doubt that comes from being part of a fallen world. Maybe you've grown up in a church, you've grown up in a Christian family, and in one sense it's been easy to believe, then suddenly you leave home and you go and you're faced with different people who come at you with different experiences. Maybe you meet someone from another faith, and you suddenly realise this person with another faith believes it just as strongly as you believe in Jesus. And you start to wonder, well, am I really right and they're wrong? Is, is that the way it is? And maybe the only reason I'm a Christian is because I got born into a Christian family. And maybe if I'd been born into a different family, well, I wouldn't be a Christian now. I'd be a Muslim. And, and maybe it just is down to where I was born. And, and if I was born somewhere, and you start to have those conversations. And you start to wonder, what about Christianity? Is it really true? Is it really... Or maybe you start to come across those who have no faith. Someone who starts wag waggling at you at the latest Richard Dawkins book and suddenly you think crumbs are these really intellectual people who have done lots and lots of really deep thinking. And maybe all those things my Sunday school teacher just doesn't quite add up anymore. Or maybe we just face the tragedy of living in a world where we look on our TV screens, we see so many suffering and we go, how can that God my teacher used to tell me about, who's so loving and caring and always there with you, suddenly doesn't look very present? Or maybe it comes much closer to home as I go through suffering. And those long-held truths about God are shaken to the core. That's a different kind of doubt. And it's important to ask, what kind of doubt is it that Thomas has? And I think this is the doubt of someone who feels deeply deeply disappointed I've often met people who use that phrase I'm disappointed with God deeply disappointed he feels really let down and the last thing that he wants to do is believe something just because it's convenient or makes him feel better he's been let down before and he is not going to be let down again Thomas does not want to confuse faith with gullibility it is very easy to confuse faith with gullibility. I get the sense that he hears from the others what's happened and he thinks to himself, that is a lovely idea. I'd love it to be true that our best friend has walked through that door and risen from the dead, but I just can't believe that. He promised so much and it all came to nothing. I can't believe this is just another thing. I just get that sense. He probably thought they, they've taught themselves into it. They want it so much, they're prepared to believe anything. I mean, for goodness sake, there are still people around who believe Elvis is alive. Wishful thinking. They want something to be true so much. They want something badly enough, they'll believe it. And I wonder also if maybe Thomas starts to work around to, well, what might the other explanations? There's probably some far better explanations. Maybe there's something in the facts of Thomas himself. Remember, Thomas... His name means twin. And uh, he was used to spending his life being mistaken for his brother, almost certainly. If he really was a twin, I can't see why he was called twin if he wasn't a twin. Now, there is a family in, who many of you know, the Martin Scots that live in this village. They have twin sons, Guy and Leo. 
They are identical twins. I have been here 14 years. It is only in the last three that I reckon I am just about confident enough to know which one I'm talking to. Fran shakes her head at me. She keeps telling me, no, there are certain distinguishing features. They sound slightly different. The problem is, when they're on a bike with a helmet on coming towards you, you don't have time to work out what distinguishing features they have. So I always just say something inane that will apply to both of them in the hope that I don't upset them. It's only because they now live in different places. I've just about worked out which one it is I'm talking to. You know, maybe he just thinks to himself, well, what? You know, it's very easy to mistake people for somebody else. You know, in all that wishful thinking, maybe they've mistaken Jesus. Maybe he had a twin, or at least maybe of someone who looked like him. That happened to Thomas all the time. So Thomas demands the only kind of evidence that can deal with his kind of doubts. He wants to be assured that the Jesus who was put into the tomb is the same Jesus that comes out of the tomb. And so he wants to see the wounds. But he doesn't just want to see the hand wounds. He wants to see the unique wounds. The wound in Jesus' side. You see, when people were crucified, and I'm sorry this is slightly graphic, it was an incredibly cruel way of killing people. So cruel that the Romans would not do it to fellow Romans. It was left for the really bad cases. You see, the way they hung on a cross and the way they died was from asphyxiation. They just couldn't breathe. It wasn't from nails going in. That was just a way of getting them onto the cross. And the only way you could breathe when you're on the cross was to push up with your legs and pull up with your arms so you could just about get up enough to let air into your, into your lungs. And then you'd suddenly go into muscle spasm and slump back down and then you wouldn't be able to breathe again. And they'd have to keep cycling, pulling yourself up so you could get a breath, and then you'd slump down. And that would literally go on for hours and hours and hours, and sometimes even days. It is horrific even to contemplate. But sometimes the guards had to accelerate death for a reason. Perhaps if there was a special day coming, and there was, Sabbath was about to come, and therefore they had to get the body down before uh, the sunset. So what they used to do was they used to go along and they would just do something very simple, which was to uh, break the shins of those who are on there. The reason being, once your shins are broken, you can't push yourself up, you can't breathe, you die very, very quickly from asphyxiation. Well, of course, they get to Jesus and they've discovered he's already dead. They were going to break, so they didn't need to break his legs. He's already dead, probably because he's probably had a greater beating and ordeal before crucifixion than anybody else. But we're told a soldier had a spear and he, or a javelin and he pushed it up inside Jesus' ribcage, pierced probably the pericardial sac. Blood and water come out. You see, it wasn't usual to go around sticking javelins in the side of those who had been crucified. That piercing of the wound on the side was maybe not completely unique, but it was unusual. So Thomas knew that if he was going to know that was really Jesus, he wanted to see that wound. That's the wound that would show that the Jesus that went into the tomb is the same Jesus who came out of the tomb. And of course, there's a sense in which he should already have believed. I get all of that. I know Jesus said time and time again that he would rise from the dead. And yes, Thomas should have taken that on board. But yet at another level, there is something deeply attractive about this, about Thomas. Someone who wants to distinguish between faith and gullibility. 
You know, there are many people in our world who believe a whole load of stuff. Some quite extraordinary stuff. And uh, I want to show you something. This is uh, something I took a picture of. Uh, and uh, this was uh, those of us who went on the um, March of Witness. Uh, we came out of St. James's and we got to where near the wig shop. I think it's a wig shop or something like that. And uh, we all had to go around this sign that was there as you walked down the high street. And there it is. Annette will uh, do for you psychic counselling, medical, financial, relationship counselling. Past lives, your destiny, tarot, oracle, runes, I don't know what that is, palmistry, numerology, medical, intuitive, and healing. She offers an awful lot of services. But notice what is written at the bottom, just above the telephone number, in inverted commas. The truth shall set you free. She quotes the Bible. Isn't that extraordinary? I find that extraordinary because she's saying it is the truth that sets you free. The question is, is any of that real? Does that, any of that lead to truth? It's very easy to offer something and say, this is going to do amazing things, but will it, really? Many people believe in many things. You can take that off now. Just before you put the telephone number down. Yeah, I spotted you. And actually, even in the Christian faith, it is very easy to make many, many claims, sometimes because we want things to be true. I remember back when I was in my 20s, 30s, and um, uh, at that time, it was around sort of Toronto Blessing and all of that, for those of you who are old enough to remember all of, uh, all of that. And uh, there were lots and lots of uh, talk of masses of healings that were going on. And uh, I remember a, a doctor, a Christian doctor, who spoke at a number of conferences. And uh, he had been doing research into the healing claims from many of these uh, rallies. And his research showed that actually it was a very small percentage of those who claimed healing where there was any medical evidence that a healing had taken place. Now, you've got to understand, this Christian doctor was not someone who didn't believe in healing. He did. He believed God could heal. And he spoke of those that he knew. But all he was trying to say was, be very careful that you don't overclaim. Because actually somehow it can work against the truth. Actually, we hear that extraordinary story and we just want to go, praise God. But the important thing is we need to know, are these things true? Did they really happen? Otherwise, we can be just as guilty of kind of presenting anything as God's without knowing if it really was God's. And actually, that Christian doctor got an awful lot of stick from an awful lot of people. As if somehow he was betraying the Christian church, somehow he was betraying Jesus by bringing his medical skills to just asking the question, has healing really taken place? He got such a lot of stick. But I find Thomas admirable because he won't believe something just because someone comes along and claims it's God. He wants faith, not gullibility. The second thing we then discover about Thomas is the adoration of an astonished doubter. The adoration of an astonished doubter, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. That he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hands and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is the second time that Jesus has walked through a locked door. Up until his crucifixion, he generally opened doors and walked through them as we do. But on two occasions, in the bit just before with the ten and now with Thomas there, he walks through a locked door. And for the second time, he utters these words, peace be with you. The word shalom can just mean hi there or hello or goodbye. This could just be Jesus walks through a clock door and goes, hi, I'm here, I'm alive. I just don't get the feeling that's quite how he's using that word shalom here. And actually shalom has a deeper sense to its meaning in the Old Testament. It can mean a kind of sense of wholeness, completeness. Complete goodness, complete forgiveness, complete cleansing, complete integrity, complete justice. Life in all its fullness. Do you see what Jesus is coming in and offering to Thomas? Peace be with you. Because of my death and because of my resurrection, I can now offer you life in all its fullness. I can offer you completeness. I can offer you wholeness. The peace that I've achieved, I now want to give to you. If, Thomas, you will just believe. If you will just believe. And so he turns to Thomas. He shows the wounds, the hands and his side. Says to him, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. It is an extraordinary thing that he says, my Lord and my God. He could have just gone, oops, sorry. (laughs) You are alive. I feel really embarrassed. But actually you get an extraordinary deep confession. What does he mean by this, my Lord and my God? What he doesn't mean is what some Jehovah's Witnesses say about this passage. This is a tricky passage for Jehovah's Witnesses because they don't believe in the true divinity of Christ. This is tricky. Some have uh, even said, there are a number of different ways they come at this, but some have even said, Thomas is literally going, my Lord, oh my God. A kind of OMG. A blasphemous OMG. It doesn't have the, it doesn't have the ring of truth of the grammar of the passage, and it doesn't have the ring of truth of the character of Thomas. A devout Jew would never have talked of God in that way. Now you can't explain this away. So why does Thomas make this leap of faith? I think almost certainly it's because he's had a week to ponder. Don't really hit me again as I looked at this passage again. The time when he said, no, I don't believe any of that. I want to see the, the, the marks in his side and his hands. It's a whole week before he then sees Jesus face to face. A week is a long time when you're trying to work out what on earth is going on in your life and around you. My guess is he had long nights lying there on his bed trying to make sense of all that was going on. He'd heard from the others and maybe he heard from the others day in, day out, day in, day out. We've seen it, we've seen it. Why don't you believe it? Don't you trust us? But he was sceptical. But I, my guess is there'd have been moments, maybe on his own, he didn't want to admit it in front of them, but on his own he thought to himself, what if they're right? What if they're right? And I guess he began to play back the last few days, weeks, years. Do you remember the words Jesus said to Philip? He'd have thought back in chapter 14. He who has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see 
God himself. Could it be true? And then months earlier, he'd heard in John 8, Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember? In the Old Testament, when Moses goes to ask God, what is your name? I don't know how, when am I going to go and tell the people, what name do I use? And he said, I am that which I am. I am who I am, or I am, I was who I was. I will be who I will be. It's Yahweh, that word which is his special name that would only be used of God. And in fact, Jews wouldn't utter it because they were so fearful of using and taking that name in vain. They wouldn't even say it. And yet Jesus boldly says, I am. He identifies himself with God. And, and Thomas would have thought about that and thought, what if? What if? And maybe he goes back even further and remembers the man who was uh, dropped down through the roof when the hole was made because the room was so full. And he gets lower down, he's paralysed, and Jesus just says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And a great argument breaks out with all the theologians because no one can forgive sin but God alone. It's blasphemy to say you can do that unless he is God. And I sense Thomas maybe just wrestling with all of this. And as he stands there saying, if this is true, he says, if he is really alive, there is no other conclusion. There can be no other conclusion other than Jesus is God himself alive with me now, offering me life and life in all its fullness. There is no other option. So he falls and says, my Lord and my God. It is an extraordinary declaration. And notice my Lord and my God. Because what this says to us is there must come a point for all of us when our Christian faith is not just a nice way to live. It's not just a nice theory. It's not just a nice way to bring up your family. Now, it has to be personal and true for me. Is Jesus my Lord and my God? Can you say those words now as Thomas did and believe them for yourself and receive from him life in life in all its fullness, wholeness, completeness, forgiveness? Is that your statement of faith this evening? Faith needs to be personal. Unless you can say, my Lord and my God, you're just part of some ritual community that turns up every week and kind of goes away feeling a little bit better. If that's all that is going on for you. And that's why confirmation tomorrow is brilliant. Because four people from our church will stand up and say, Jesus is my Lord and my God. The most profound things anyone can say. Rebecca's here. Rebecca's getting confirmed. It'd be lovely if you could be there tomorrow night at seven. To see Fiona Datu as well and Annabelle Dunningham and Betty Ashdown, who's going to be 89 tomorrow when she stands there and publicly says, my Lord and my God, please come and be with them. It's a very powerful moment. But then finally... What is the function and what is the role then of this converted doubter? Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Sometimes I think this verse can be slightly misunderstood. It's almost got a sense, I think, to some of us of, oh, dear old Thomas. 
He got there in the end, but oh, he had to have the kind of extra help. You know, the person has to have a bit of extra help to get there because they're a bit slow on the uptake. Poor old Thomas. I mean, you're much more blessed if, you know, like the rest of us, you can just believe it. You know, real people of faith. But poor old Thomas, he got there in the end. Is that really what this is about? I don't think so. And yet the reason why it's easy to read it like that is because that is the way most people today think about faith. Faith for many today is something subjective, personal, and is simply my religious preference. It's not particularly related to evidence or cold facts. It is just that you have your faith and I have my faith. And even if they say diametrically opposite things, as for instance Christianity and Islam do, they say diametrically opposite things that cannot both be true all at once. And yet we often say, oh well, we can both hold those to be true because if they're true for you or if it's true for me, well then that's all that really matters. And then what becomes the key issue is the sincerity with which you hold your faith. And that's what we start to admire, the sincerity of someone's faith. It's not about evidence, it's not about facts, but about my sincerity and that it helps me. Well, faith in the Bible is never, ever spoken of like that. It is never spoken of like that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has some very firm things to say. You see, some are starting to drift from believing the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul challenges them. He says to them, if Jesus has not physically been raised from the dead, if that is not true, if that did not factually happen, you need to realise there are some serious implications. First is this, the apostles, the disciples are all liars. They are complete liars because that is what they've said has happened. And if it hasn't happened, they are liars Or they're deluded. Either way, you shouldn't take any notice of them. Therefore, do not read your New Testament. It cannot be trusted if Jesus hasn't actually physically risen from the dead. Secondly, he says, you're still in your sins. If Jesus is still dead, then we have no idea at all whether what Jesus did on the cross has any effect whatsoever. Because actually Jesus is no different from the other two thieves that hang either side. He is a dead man who can do nothing to help anybody. If he has not risen from the dead, we have no guarantee that he paid for our sins on the cross. Therefore, you're still in your sin. Thirdly, he says, your faith is futile. If you believe something that isn't true, then your faith is useless. It's not just nice for you. It is useless, he says. It is of no benefit to you whatsoever. And then finally says, you are to be pitied. You are to be pitied more than all men. If you believe something just because you want it to be true, just because it makes you feel better, despite the evidence showing that it isn't, then it's a joke. You are totally gullible. You have been had. One Easter, not that many years ago, an Australian archbishop was asked on TV, supposing we found the tomb of Jesus and could show conclusively that Jesus did not rise from the dead, what would that do to your faith? And the Anglican Archbishop of Perth said, it wouldn't do anything because Jesus is risen in my heart. And that is complete rubbish. That is total rubbish. 
If Jesus' remains are still in a tomb, we must leave this building immediately and go home, put our feet up, and do whatever you like for the rest of your life because there is simply no point being here. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, there is nothing worth being here for. Unless you just want to be part of a big coffee club in the middle of the village, and there are plenty of those. We don't need another one. There is no incentive to believing something that is not true. And the Bible says that is not what faith is about. Faith is about putting your trust in something that is provably true. Which is why, of course, you get those last two verses from John. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I've written down these miracles. There are a ton more I could have written down. I've written them down so that you can look at them and you can see the proof, the cast iron proof, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So you can trust him and you can know that through trusting him there is life in his name. Without that evidence, you cannot know whether you can trust him. And of course, one of the most important bits of evidence that we have, those of us who are not, were not there, is the evidence of the witnesses, those who saw it and have written it down. And the best evidence, as far as I'm concerned, is the evidence of a witness who is not prepared to be hoodwinked or gullible. That's the kind of witness I want. I want someone who's not prepared to have the wool pulled over their eyes. I want a witness who demands to see cast iron proof, see it and touch it kind of proof. That is exactly the kind of witness I want. And in Thomas, that is exactly the kind of witness we get. And that is why I am so blessed by having Thomas's reassuring doubts and emphatic confession of faith recorded here. Thank goodness for Thomas. Amen.